Well, the word of God is good, it's powerful, and it is true. And God, we ask that God may continue to minister to us through the preaching of his holy word this morning. So today we are continuing in the Gospel of Mark, and if you have your Bibles, would you please turn in them with me to Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8. We are recovering kind of a a large section today. We're going to go from verse 1 all the way to verse 26, Um, but but for right now, um, we're going to just go over the first 21 verses, 1 through 21. And so as you turn there in your Bibles with me, Uh, Would you please stand, if you are able, out of honor for the Holy Word of God. Mark 8, verses 1 through 21. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered, and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd, because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven. And he directed the crowd to sit on the ground. And he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish. And having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people. And he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? So reads the word of God. You may have a seat. Throughout the book of Mark, we've been answering the question, who is Jesus? Since we started the gospel just about a year ago, We've considered who the person of Jesus is and what the nature of his kingdom is. And today is no different. Mark is continuing to unravel the the glories of Jesus, the Son of God, and reveal to us the nature of his kingdom that, that was coming then and has come for us. 
Mark has continued to, to give us snapshots of Jesus' ministry, just giving us glimpses about the nature that is touching down on earth. And so today, I have a proposition for you, and it's, it's very simple. It's very straightforward, and it's this. See Jesus. In the form of command, see Jesus. I think that's what Mark wants for us today. The, the disciples, the Jews, and the Pharisees, they, they all have their own expectations and opinions of, of who the Messiah will be and what is to be expected of him. But, as we see, they, they are blind to see who he really is. They cannot see him, and that's what we're dealing with today. And that is what's pressing on us today. Do we see him? Do we know him? What are our expectations of Jesus? Are they born out of our own opinions and thoughts of what Jesus should be like? How, how he should fit into our mold? Maybe he's just another add-on to your life that, that's convenient. Well, today, my, my hope for, for you is that you'll be challenged and that you will be all freshly confronted with who Jesus really is. And in turn, we will all see him as we ought and walk away renewed by the power of his word. So see Jesus. My first point is this. Jesus is a compassionate shepherd. He's a compassionate shepherd. We see this in verses 1 through 10. And as we read this narrative, you, you might have been asking the question in your head. Haven't we been here before? Hasn't Jesus already performed this miracle and you would be right, in a sense, to ask that. And I know it's been a while since we were in chapter 6, but back in chapter 6, we do have an account of Jesus miraculous, miraculously feeding a crowd of 5,000 men. And now in chapter 8, we have a similar story, but one that clearly has a different point, one, and one that will serve us in a fresh way today. But, but this narrative is also a bookend to a very important section in Mark's gospel, one that began with the first miraculous feeding. And as we get to verse 1, we must notice what came right before. Jesus has been traveling through Gentile territory. He's going to places that Jews would, would actively try to avoid, places where, that were unclean and unholy, places that Jesus and his disciples were, were actually not supposed to venture towards based on the Jews. And surely the disciples, they get that. And surely they're, they're a little uneasy as Jesus is taking them through these towns. And notice from last week that there, there's a crowd forming. People are coming to Jesus. People are wanting to hear about Jesus. They want to see the miracles that he's performed. They want to meet him. And I would assume this is people from all over the Decapolis, which is where they're at, which is a region of, of 10 Greek cities um, in, in, that, in, the region, in this region outside of Jerusalem, um, Israel. And people, they, they've probably heard rumors of a Jewish man who's healing and performing these miracles. And so, so we go to our text and we read that, once again, a, a great crowd in, um, is following them. And he says, in those days, in the days that Jesus was traveling through the, this Gentile region. And as Jesus indicates in verse 2, they've been with him for three days. And they've been traveling a good distance to follow him. Like I said, people want to know who he is. And as they gather around him and are with him for a while, Mark says that they, they have nothing to eat. And prompted by no one, because no one asks for food, Jesus calls the disciples to him and says to them, I have compassion on the crowd, 
because they've been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their home, they, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. I have compassion on the crowd. This is an incredible statement from Jesus, one that he actually did make in the first account back in chapter 6. But here it's the people that he has compassion for that's significant. These are Gentiles, as I said, and yet Jesus is expressing his genuine care for them. They have followed him from all over and have not eaten, and without them even asking for food, he sees their need and is deeply moved to meet that need. But how do the disciples respond? Jesus has done this before, right? In fact, he he fed a far larger crowd than just 5,000 because it was 5,000 men, which would amounted to at least probably 10,000 with women and children. But here it's it's just 4,000 altogether. And they're hungry. They, they, They need food, but they have Jesus. So you would assume that the disciples respond with enthusiasm and expectancy for Jesus to meet this need again. But not exactly. No, the disciples answer by asking him, how is it that they're going to feed these people with bread in such a desolate place? We can't feed all these people. We're not made of bread. So Jesus, in his divine patience, he doesn't rebuke them. But he instead continues to ask them, how many loaves do you have? He knows that they have food. They obviously came prepared for themselves, and they answered him by saying that they have seven loaves. And then Jesus proceeds to, to ask the hungry crowd to, to go ahead and sit on the ground. Now, now, put yourselves in the shoes of this crowd. You, you're traveling around for three days, watching this man perform miracles and listening to, to him teach about th- this kingdom that's coming. And as you're in this desolate wasteland, your, your stomach begins to growl. You, you haven't eaten much the last few days. You, you didn't prepare to be gone this long. But here you are. You know going home probably isn't an option because it's a long journey back and you, you, you're, you're trying to figure out what to do. But then this Jesus guy, he calls the crowd to gather around and sit down. And so you do, not, not knowing what's to come next. And then Jesus starts grabbing loaves of bread and breaking them. And you notice that, oh, there's there's only seven of them, so certainly not enough to feed this massive crowd. And then Jesus starts breaking the bread, and then he says a prayer of thanksgiving and hands the bread back to his disciples. Not sure if these men are just going to eat in front of you, but you wait. Then the men start passing the bread to the people now, like the first account, we, we have no clue what this was like. Did the bread just start multiplying in the hands of the disciples? Was, was bread just popping into existence? Who knows? But the disciples begin giving bread to the people, and you get your piece, and you start eating it. And boy, is it good. Because of how hungry you are, this is the best bread you've ever eaten. But wait, there's more. The disciples find a, find a few fish, and then they give them to Jesus, and so Jesus blesses the fish as well and, giving, and gives them to the disciples, and they start handing the fish out. We started with three fish, and now everyone around you has some, and you eat this fish as well. A common meal for you, for sure, but a delicious one in this desolate place. And after having your fill of bread and fish, you realize that you're suddenly full and satisfied. 
You just ate a meal that you will never forget, a meal that started with a very small amount of bread and fish that this Jesus miraculously turned into a feast for thousands. Now, as we, as we continue this narrative, after the crowd is, is filled and satisfied, we see that the disciples pick up the leftovers and gather them into baskets. And the, these aren't just mere small baskets of bread that hold a few pieces. No, Mark uses a different word than what he used back in chapter 6. No, this, this basket is a Gentile basket used by Gentiles. And it was meant for carrying much larger things. In, in fact, it is the same type of basket that was used to carry Paul over the walls of Damascus in Acts 9. These are large baskets, and the disciples gather seven baskets full of leftovers. We don't know exactly what they did with the leftovers, but they probably just gave it to the crowd to take home. And the narrative, it concludes when, when Jesus sent the crowd away, and then he and his disciples got into the boat and traveled to Dalmanutha, which is on the other side of the Sea of Galilee in Jewish territory. Now, as we walk through this story, there are a few differences to the first feeding that are worth noticing, because this isn't the same story. This isn't the same narrative. It is a new narrative, a new account. And, and of course, one thing we see is the number. There are 4,000 people this time compared to the 5,000 men. Now, Mark could have numbered the number of men who were there, which would have amounted to probably 1,500 or 2,000. But, but he chooses to give the number of the whole group. And because we know that numbers are significant in Scripture, and Mark especially likes to use numbers to, to make a point, the 4,000 could simply be symbolizing the four corners of the earth, but multiplied by 1,000 to show the extent to which Jesus is going to feed the Gentile world. He's going to save people from every tribe, tongue, and nation spread throughout the four corners of the world. We also see that there are seven loaves when they pick up the leftovers, and they fill seven baskets full. And seven in Scripture is a number of completion. See, the crowd's hunger has been completely satisfied, and Jesus has completed his ministry to the Gentiles. Another difference that we see is, is, is who takes initiative at the beginning. Jesus does. In the previous miracle, the disciples see the need, and then they go to Jesus and here, Jesus sees the need, and he goes to the disciples. I think this is to first show the disciples' blindness. They likely would not have expected Jesus to feed a great crowd of Gentiles. And they clearly were not expecting him to perform another miracle, even though he has done it once before, but with a much greater crowd. But Jesus is moved with compassion for these lost sheep, and so he provides for them. He meets their need. And he uses, uses his disciples, despite their blindness, he uses his disciples to meet that need, to, to, to give out the bread and the fish to the people. Jesus is teaching them in this moment. He's revealing to them what they are going to do when he departs from, from them into heaven. They will be his hands and feet. They will continue his work, and they will feed Gentiles just like these people. But he, they will feed, him, feed them with living bread. Feed them with the good news of Jesus, whose body will be broken, whose blood will be shed for people just like these Gentiles. Now, this narrative, as I said, is a perfect bookend to the first feeding of the 5,000, because with that account, Jesus feeds the Jews, but here he meets the Gentiles in a desolate place as well, breaks bread with them as well. And, and just imagine 
Mark's audience is primary, primarily Gentiles. So just imagine being a Gentile and reading this account. You read of the, 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 the 5,000, Jesus feeds the, the Jews, and it's a miraculous, amazing story that Jesus is able to do this. But then you get to the story of the 4,000. And it's Gentiles that he is going to, that he is feeding, that he is breaking bread with, that he's having fellowship with. Jesus has come for you as well. And this narrative, it, it's placed in a very crucial point in Mark's gospel. Because after he gets in this boat to leave, after he leaves this region, where is he going? Where is he going from here? He, he's beginning his journey to Jerusalem. He has fed the 4,000. Now he's going to die for people just like them. His body is going to be broken so that he can feed those in desolate places, so that he can feed the nations. Mark is in the process of revealing to us, to us the readers, that Jesus is the ultimate king and shepherd of his people. And that he's not only willing to feed the Jews, but he's inviting all people to come to his table by providing Gentiles a meal. And by doing this specifically here, he's revealing the size of his banquet table, where all come and feast. But notice, of course, that he uses us to bring, to accomplish that task. He uses his people to go out and feed, to share the gospel, to proclaim that Jesus is a compassionate shepherd that's come for sheep that are outside the fold of Israel. Now our second point. Jesus is a suffering king. Now this point will require a little more explaining, but, but let's continue in our narrative. As he sends the crowd away, Jesus gets into the boat with his disciples and goes to another region on the other side of the Sea of Galilee into Jewish territory. And in verse 11, we, we have some new characters enter the story. At some point after arriving, the Pharisees come up to him and begin arguing with him. And like most of their interactions with Jesus, they're not trying to have a civil discourse. No, they're looking to trap Jesus and to find some fault with him and to accuse him. And what is the topic of their discourse here? Well, the Pharisees come to him. They, they come demanding a sign from heaven. They want something tangible, something that proves that he is who he actually says he is. More, more rumors are spreading about the miracles that he's doing. And they, they are getting probably fed up with him. And they want to know, who is this Jesus? And so he, they ask him for a sign. But they want a sign that shows that he's the Messiah that, that they want. The type of Messiah that they are looking for. One who would come in a supernatural way. One that would give them not only personal gain, but political gain over the Roman Empire. A king with a scepter in hand to rule over the world and restore them the Jews, to political prominence. And at this time, the Jews were, were under the boot of Rome, and, and though they, they could worship as they wished, they, they knew they were still under the authority of another, awaiting a Messiah to end that rule. And it's safe to say that a rabbi from Galilee was not what they had in mind. A teacher who, who did not hold to their traditions and strict additions to the law. They didn't expect him to come as one who would humiliate them and expose their hypocrisy. 
They had other things in mind. And they misunderstood the nature also of Jesus' rule, a misunderstanding of his kingdom. They, They wanted a sign that would assure that he was the Messiah they wanted and not the one that God foretold and the prophets, that they didn't, ex- for some reason, they didn't expect a suffering servant king, one who humbled himself to such a state as to be born in a manger, to, be, to come from a town called Nazareth. They didn't expect him to get his hands dirty as a carpenter. They didn't expect him to dine with the lowest people in society, and they especially did not expect him to eat with Gentiles. And they would not expect him to suffer and die a sinner's death and be hanged on a tree. Though Isaiah spoke of it, though Isaiah said that the Messiah would be marred beyond human resemblance, that he would have no form or majesty or beauty to be desired, that that he would be despised and rejected, that he would be pierced for the transgressions of the people, that he would be crushed, oppressed, and afflicted, that he would be a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and that he would be cut off from the land of the living. Though Isaiah spoke of it, they were blind and they could not see it. And yet even Isaiah foretold of their blindness when he said that his own people did not esteem him. His own people would reject him. See, the Pharisees are blind. They ask for a sign, and even though they are blind and cannot see, they, they ask for a sign even though they are blind and they cannot see Jesus for who he is. And so what's Jesus' response here? Well, the text says that he sighed deeply in his spirit. For though his mission was exploding with miracles, though he provided sign after sign, though he revealed himself to be the Son of God, these Pharisees did not get it. This is the only place that Mark uses this verb. He sighed deeply. Mark is expressing not simply that Jesus feels sorry for them, but that he has deep grief for these men who are bringing great judgment upon themselves for rejecting the Messiah. And then he says, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. This is a, this is a Hebrew idiom. He is basically making an oath, declaring that they are not going to get what they asked for. And surely the Pharisees would have been furious at this. In fact, this is the last interaction that we have with the Pharisees until they begin plotting how to put him to death after he cleanses the temple in chapter 11. But following this, Jesus then leaves the Pharisees. He's done with them, and he gets into a boat once again with the disciples. Now, the Pharisees, they they wanted a sign. They wanted evidence that, that fit their agenda. They wanted Jesus to fit their mold. They wanted the type of Messiah that would meet their needs. But Jesus refuses. Jesus doesn't play their games. No, but he exposes their hard hearts, that exposes their blind eyes, that they cannot see him. But, but what if Jesus did give them a sign? Consider, consider this. What if he actually did? What if he called down fire from heaven and made the earth shake? What if he displayed his power the way that we, they wanted to see? And, and what if, what, would that have actually changed anything? What, would that actually have changed their opinions? No. And Jesus knew that. He, he has given them more than enough signs, more than enough evidence, but a hard heart cannot be changed by mere evidence. Wicked men don't have an evidence problem. They have a heart problem. These Pharisees have a heart problem. And so Jesus leaves them in their sin. He leaves them in their, with their hard hearts, And then the scene scene shifts. 
And as the scene shifts, we are back on a boat with the disciples. It's worth noting here that there are three boat scenes in the book of Mark, and each one is somewhat repetitive. In each scene, the disciples display a lack of understanding and a lack of faith in Jesus. But they're more than repetitive because as the narrative of Mark progresses, the disciples have more and more reason to trust Jesus. And and so their continual ignorance becomes more blameworthy as the narrative progresses. And so let let us watch this final boat scene unfold. In verse 14, Mark notes that the disciples, they forgot to bring bread with them except for one loaf. And they're, they're traveling again, again, and they do not have food to continue their journey. But, but surely that wouldn't be a problem, right? I mean, they know what Jesus is capable of. In fact, they will even admit that they know what he's capable of when he asks them about the miracles, and they give the exact number of bread that was left over. He fed the 5,000. He fed the 4,000. Surely he can feed the 12 disciples with one loaf, Right? But Jesus, he he recognizes their predicament, and he takes an opportunity, as he often does, to teach them. He goes on to warn them, saying, watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. So he's making reference to his previous interaction with the Pharisees. He uses bread as an analogy to warn the disciples to watch out. Now, leaven here refers to old fermented dough, which was thoroughly mixed into a new batch of dough in order to make bread rise. And he uses leaven as an, as an object picture elsewhere as he describes the nature of the kingdom. But here he uses it in a negative way, saying that the teaching of the Pharisees is like leaven that affects an entire loaf of bread. You need just a little bit and it will affect the entire loaf. See, so just a little bit of their teaching and they can corrupt an entire group of people. And he interestingly makes reference to Herod, who also was in opposition to Jesus. Herod was king in the lower regions of Rome at the time. And he, like the Pharisees, had his own understanding of the nature of authority. He had an opinion. If if he had an opinion on how the Messiah should rule, it would have been very similar to the Pharisees. It would have been been a self-serving, self-exalting rule. And this type of authority is the leaven that Jesus is warning against. He wants the disciples to understand what what true authority looks like and what authority would look like in his kingdom and what it is to avoid false authority. And this would entail that the disciples as well needed to change their expectations about the nature of Christ, of the Messiah. And this is made evident by their response in verse 16. And they began discussing with one, one another... What Jesus was talking about? No, they begin discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. See, the disciples, they, they were recognizing that they only have one loaf. And having, hear, hear, having heard Jesus mention bread, they start discussing the fact that they have no bread. They completely miss Jesus' point. It goes over their head. And they remain preoccupied with their lack of lunch. They're blind to what Jesus is trying to tell them just like the Pharisees are blind. So Jesus, aware of their response and aware of their lack of understanding, he responds to them, and he does so by asking seven very sobering questions. Sobering questions that are asked in order to draw attention to their real predicament, their real problem. He asks, why are you discussing that you have no bread? Do you not perceive or understand? 
are your hearts hardened? Having eyes do you not see, and having ears do you not hear? Do you not remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000? How many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they answered, 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets did you take up? And they answered, seven. And lastly, do you not yet understand? He asked these questions in order to expose the problem that they have. Their problem is not that they don't have food. No, their problem is that their hearts are hardened. His correction of them for their physical problem confronts them with their spiritual problem. This is a climatic moment in their history together because nowhere else does Jesus ask such pressing questions. And clearly, Jesus is considering both feedings to be key moments for the disciples. And so he brings up these events again. They, they, they clearly remember them, as I said, these miracles, they understand them, but they have no clue what these events were meant to reveal about the person of Christ. Think about how much they've observed during Jesus' ministry. They've seen Jesus heal a leper, a paralytic man, a man with a withered hand. They've experienced Jesus calm a life-threatening storm. They've observed the deliverance of the man possessed by a multitude of demons and the deliverance of the Seraphonician woman, woman's daughter, who was also possessed by a demon. They, they saw Jesus raise Jairus' daughter from the dead. They have observed Jesus walking on water. They've observed him heal a deaf and mute man. And they've observed not one, but two miraculous feedings. And that's just what Mark has recorded. And yet sitting in this boat with only one loaf of bread, the hardness of their, hardness of their heart is revealed. It's evidence. They still don't get it. They're clueless. And so we may ask, what, what, what hope is there for them? What hope is there for them? Well, lest we be too harsh on the disciples, which we shouldn't, for we would not be any better than them apart from the Spirit's work in our lives. But, but where is their hope? Is there hope? I, I think there is. And their hope is actually found in one single word. Yet. Do you not yet understand? Though it would make sense for Jesus to do so, he does not give up on them. Jesus is not going to abandon them because of their ignorance. No, there is still a time when they will get it. There's a time when they will soon get it. But for now, their hearts remain hardened. They remain blind. And a hard heart cannot see Jesus for who he is. Even the disciples see that, the disciples partly see, they see that he came as, a, um, as, as the Messiah. And we will see later after in the next chapter that Peter will confess Jesus to be the Christ. Jesus came for a purpose and he wants these 12 unlearned men to know him and know why he came and what he came for. But Jesus also knows that it's going to take time. And that he, but you, we can all clearly see his patience with them. Soon their hearts will be softened. Soon their hearts will their hard hearts will be replaced with living hearts that will love Jesus, hearts that will see Jesus, hearts that see him as the suffering king who was victorious over sin and death, 
the king who crushes Satan's head and did so by suffering and dying in order to redeem Adam's fallen race. They, they will see him, but not yet. But they too also will follow in his footsteps as they suffer for his sake, as they taste death for the glory of the one who showed compassion to them, who was patient with them, the one who did not abandon them, but died for their sins. And this leads me to my third and final point as we look at the final portion of our, of our text. Jesus is a life-transforming Savior. He's a life-transforming Savior. Let me read verses 22 through 26. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit in his, on his eyes and laid his hand, hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, do not even enter the village. So we know that the Pharisees, they do not hear or see Jesus. We know that, that generation of Jews do not see Jesus as they should. And the disciples as well are having trouble seeing Jesus. And so what are we to make of this? What are they to do? Well, Jesus gives an answer, and he gives his answer in the form of a miracle which actually serves as a parable. Jesus answers the latter group's problem, the disciples' problem, by healing this blind man. Just like the previous healing of the deaf and mute man, we see likewise a two-stage healing of this blind man. This was not gradual because it was more difficult for Jesus. No, it was, it was gradual because it is functioning as a parable. Jesus is teaching his disciples who are with him at this moment. To begin, this man is brought to Jesus. He's brought by some people in this town who are likely very close to this man, maybe relatives, and they're, they're concerned for him, for they don't, they, not only, they don't only bring him to Jesus, but they beg Jesus to, to merely touch him. They want, him, want Jesus to touch their friend, to lay his hands on him because they know the power that this Jesus has. And this man, he's blind. He's likely been blind for most of his life, maybe since he was born. And just, just put yourself in his shoes. Blind for most of your life, but you hear of a man named Jesus. Who, he's healed many people of various ailments, and he's come to town. And your friends and your family tell you about him, and he's, as he's arrived, they're, they're going to take you to him so that maybe Jesus can lay his hands on you to heal you. And so they get him to Jesus. And what does Jesus do? He first takes him by the hand and leads him out of the village, just like he did with the deaf and mute man. He did this likely to get away from the crowd so this man can be less distracted by others and be able to focus more intently on Jesus. And he's led outside the village, and then Jesus begins another seemingly unorthodox method of healing. And here we see the first stage of the, the two-stage healing. Jesus spits on his hand and touches his eyes. 
Now, lest we think that this is disturbing for him, it's worth considering, just like the previous healing, Jesus is doing this intentionally. He's doing this intentionally so that he can meet this man where he is. He's interacting this, with this man in a way that he understands. The deaf man had never had the ability to hear, and so Jesus put, puts his fingers in his ears. He's communicating with him in a way that he understands. And here with this blind man, Jesus is communicating with him by spitting on his hands and touching his eyes so that he understands what's happening. And then Jesus asks this man a question that he probably thought no one would ever genuinely ask him. Do you see anything? The man looked up and said, with probably great, overwhelming excitement, I see people. I see people, but they look like trees walking. So Jesus begins the second stage of this healing by laying his hands on his eyes again. And the man proceeds to open his eyes, and his sight was restored. He can see. You can imagine his excitement and immense joy. This man, Jesus, has given me sight, and I can see clearly. Oh, what that moment must have been like for this man. Fanny Crosby, she was a very well-known hymn writer in the 19th century. She wrote over 9,000 hymns. But what was most remarkable about this woman was that she was born blind. On one occasion, a preacher with, with, with good intentions once said to her, I think it is a great pity that the master did not give you sight when he showered you with so many other gifts. And her response that, that she gave at once was, I have heard such comments before. Do you know that if at birth I had been able to give one petition, it would have been that I was born blind. Because when I get to heaven, the first face that shall ever gladden my sight will be that of my Savior. And surely that was her first sight. She saw Jesus. And likewise, consider this the Son of God. It was his Savior and Lord, who has not just healed his eyes, but most definitely healed his soul, so that one day he will have eyes that will never fail him, that will always see his Savior. He can see. And Jesus, he concludes this encounter in a similar fashion as he often does by asking this man to, to not even enter the village because Jesus knows the, the uproar that would occur had these people known that Jesus performed this miracle. And so concludes the narrative. Now, it's, it's important for us that we understand that this miracle and the, the one before it in chapter 7 are, they're strategically placed in the Gospel of Mark. In fact, these two miracles are not found anywhere else in the Gospels, just here. 
And they're here in order to teach the disciples. These are parables that show their spirit, the spiritual state of the disciples and the coming restoration to their deafness and their blindness. And just as there was a two-stage healing of this blind man, so there will be a two-stage healing of the disciples as Jesus progressively gives them sight. Even now, though it may seem like they've learned very little, they're in the process of being able to see men like trees. They can see that Jesus is more than just a teacher. In fact, in the next verses, as I said, Jesus will confess Jesus to be the Christ. Peter is beginning to see, and surely many of the other disciples are as well, but it's taking time. It's gradual, just like these healings. Do you not yet understand? The Spirit is at work. They will soon understand, and when they do, they will not stop talking about Christ and what he's accomplished. They will not be silenced until death, because they will see clearly. Now, where does this leave us? What, what does this mean for us? Do we, do we see Jesus for who he is? Does his word change you, change how you live, how you act, how you think, how you see others? Do, do you see Jesus as a compassionate savior or maybe a distant one? Do you see Jesus as a suffering king or maybe a prideful tyrant? Do you see Jesus as a life-transforming Savior or just a careless observer? As we saw today, Jesus doesn't just say that he has compassion upon broken people, but he demonstrates it. He fed the 4,000 because he cared for the 4,000. He will soften the hearts of his people because he cares for his people. He healed the blind man because he cared for the blind man. Because Jesus, he's brought his kingdom Therefore, we must have eyes to see it. But it's only through the Spirit's work that we can see it. That we can see that he came for us, that he lived for us, that he suffered and died for us, was risen for us, so that we can see him as he is, so that we can see clearly, so that we would follow him as his servants, doing his work for his glory. And In our text today, we see a few things. First, we see that growth takes time. We did, not have it, we did not have it all figured out right when we came to faith. We were immature, like, like a child who begins growing through adolescence. We had growing pains. Th- th- think about when, when you first saw, when you first saw the Savior. What was it like? Did it take time? And do you, rem- do you, do you remember when you finally saw clearly? I do sitting in a college Bible study right out of high school. A pastor friend of mine teaching through a text that I've heard over and over again growing up. But in this Bible study on that winter night, for the first time, my eyes were opened. I can't explain it. I don't understand it, except for God's work through his spirit in me. And the text was Ephesians 2.8, For by grace you've been saved through faith. It's not of your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. I finally saw, I finally got it. I saw the grace of God through Christ, my need for a Savior, and the work that Christ did to die for me. I saw my sin-bearing and wrath-absorbing 
Savior hanging on the cross for my sins so that I would be forgiven. I saw him finally. And I ask myself, why, why me? Why was I given eyes to see? I think about all the interactions I've had growing up with people in the church, friends and family, so many people that I now know did not see and do not to this day see. And yet somehow I do. Somehow I do. It owed not, not, to nothing else but the grace of God. This should humble our interaction with unbelievers. Just as you needed grace, so you must show much grace. Every person you meet who does not know Jesus is blind. And it's only the Spirit of God that can change their hearts. But he does, does so through the preaching of the gospel. They, they must hear the gospel. And God uses us to preach his message to these people who need Christ. We must be gracious, gracious. We can give unbelievers all the evidence, the signs that they ask for, but that will not change their hearts. This, this, this means that this must change our perspective of unbelievers in our lives. They need the Spirit of God. They need the true gospel. They need Christ. And so we be patient. We, we, we are patient with them, just as Jesus was patient with his disciples. We be patient with our loved ones, trusting that God can do that work in their hearts, that he may be pleased to save them. We trust in the Lord. Parents, consider your children. As, as you raise them in the faith, they likewise need grace every day. We don't know at what age the Spirit works. Just as the wind blows, we don't know where it comes from or where it goes. What our children need is us teaching them how to know Jesus, not, not how to doubt their faith. They need to grow up knowing Jesus at a young age in such a way that they, though they may only see trees in front of them for many years or a few years, we have faith that the Spirit is at work to give them clear sight eventually. As we pour the gospel into their lives, telling them about the glories of Calvary, teaching them who Jesus is so that when they do finally see, they already know the Savior that will be right in front of them. And lastly, let us remember that kingdom citizens trust the king to meet the needs of others through the means of his people. We can't look at someone who is hungry and ask, ask God to feed them. We can't look at someone who needs the gospel and ask God to bring the gospel to them. It's through us that Jesus works, just as he worked through his disciples. Let's be specific. If there's a need in our church, how quick are you to meet that need? Let's get practical. A meal train for someone who just had a baby is created. How often do you just assume that someone will fill that, will fill all the slots? Well, if everyone just assumes that no one will do it. And the need will not be met. Someone's sick in the hospital. You can't just sit there and ask God to provide for them while you have the, if you have the means to help them. God does not ask us to assume the prob that problems will be fixed by others. This goes for needs in our community as well. 
We can complain all we want about the state of our, of our town, the poor decisions of, of our leaders and our legislators, the influx of the homeless, the rising costs of everything. You can complain and complain, but what are you doing about it? What difference are you making? Your neighbors, do you, do you even know your neighbors? What about that one neighbor with the rainbow flag? What about the one with the Biden sticker on their car? Do you know them? Have you introduced yourself? Have you offered to help them with anything they need? Have you offered to mow their lawn? Have you, have you invited them over for dinner? Jesus had compassion upon the crowd. He saw their immediate need and he met that need. They were hungry and he didn't say, well, what you actually need is the four spiritual laws. Which aren't bad, but, but no, no he, he fed them. Invite your neighbor over for dinner and you will have a better way and a better opportunity to share the gospel with them than you would if you knocked on their door and handed out a gospel track. Jesus, he built relationships with people. He met their needs, met them where they are, and then he led them to their greatest need. Do you want to see kingdom growth? Well, then get your hands dirty. Because God wants to feed the hungry. He wants to meet the needs of the hurting and lost and broken. But he wants to use you to do it. He wants, to, he wants his gospel to go forth in Bozeman. The bread of life wants to feed those who are starving. And you have that bread. You have the food that they desperately need, so go and give it to them. You see Jesus. Go tell others about him. Tell them what Jesus has done in your life. Because it's through us that Jesus will feed the nations. It's through us that the gospel goes forth and is proclaimed as we trust in Christ to build his church. It's through us that Christ is crushing the head of Satan. It's through us that Jesus is extending his kingdom. It's through us that the world is being fed the bread of life. So go serve these people with what they need. And get your hands dirty and get to work for the glory of Christ and the glory of his kingdom. Trusting in him who has given you sight, who has changed your life who has called you to himself, who has made you new. Go forth, saints. Wait, let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you once again. We thank you for your word. Lord, we pray that we may take your word from Mark 8 this week and apply it to our lives, that we may, may rejoice in the fact that we see you that we get to see Jesus so clearly. But Lord, give us sight when we, when we blind ourselves with meaningless things, when we turn away, when we aren't looking where we should. Direct our path, Lord, so that we may see Jesus more clearly every day until glory when we will see him perfectly. Thank you that Though we were blind, you've, you made us see. Though we were lost, we've been found by our compassionate Savior who loves us. Thank you, Father, for your Son and sending him to die and to rise and to ascend to your right hand, uniting us to him. Thank you that we are forgiven of all our sins. May we tell others about this. May we desire, may we long to see others come to Jesus. 
trusting that you will do that, that work that only you can do. May we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.